Talk Radio Network to bring forth this incredible, incredible black-owned, news-driven, podcast-driven, people-driven uh, company that is, uh, man, about to do some great things coming up in the near future, not only just for the people of color, but for all people involved in our world, because it takes all of it takes each of us to help all of us. All right, so also I want to highlight one of my fellow podcasters who I had a uh, a great opportunity to become um, a guest on her show. Uh, excuse me, Doctor Keisha. I know she's listening right now. Wherever she is, Doctor Keisha Ross of New Horizons. Uh, her her show talks about the mind and body connection <clears throat> on her show. She does a lot dealing with uh, mental health, especially in the people of color community. And she has an incredible opportunity to really grow and be uh, extremely successful. I've loved her show. We've done quite a few things together so far. So I'm going to definitely tell you guys, you want to tune into her show. Um, her show comes on on uh, every second and fourth Sunday, 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. Excuse me, 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern, Sunday, every second and fourth Sunday. So that means she has a show coming up uh, this Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, because this was just the past first Sunday. So she has a show coming up this Sunday. So you definitely want to check her out uh, on that show. I'm uh, excited to put, you know, uh, um, some love behind her because we had a great, great conversation about of mental health in the black community and the uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome um, that has happened to many of us that were part of the, the heritage of slavery here in the United States. So, um, so yeah, there you check out Dr. Keisha Ross, New Horizons, every second and fourth Sunday, 4 p.m. East uh, Pacific time, 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, before we hop into today's show, I do want to make another quick announcement uh, that I made on the last show, and I'm going to make on every show until November 5th gets here. Um, on Saturday, November 5th, the Win the Window International Network, a nonprofit organization, uh, has partnered with ITRN and will be hosting a telethon to raise money for food and educational materials. Uh, Beverly Tucker and her team will travel to the South Sudan uh, from December 7th through December 15th to take much-needed food and educational supplies. 
Their goal is to raise 66000 to support over 900 students and 60 teachers in Juba, South Sudan, for three months. The goal of the WIN, the WIN organization is to educate 1 million South Sudanese in the near future. Now, the telethon will be from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time and then hours accordingly to where you are. I believe it's 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the goal is to raise 66000 once again, uh, which will make a substantial impact on their lives uh, of the recipients because of your generosity. So uh, they really could use your support. So remember, not if you have a moment. When you have a moment on Saturday, November 5th, please listen in on the live stream, join the Zoom call, or see the telethon on YouTube on the ITRN uh, network channel that we have on YouTube, and be sure to tell your friends and family about it. So let's make history by being part of a team to make a difference to impact nearly a thousand people who may not have had that help if it wasn't for you listening to the sound of my voice, willing to contribute. Uh, the South Sudan will always be in our thoughts, our prayers, and now we're going to ask some financial partnership. Let's give back to the homeland, the origination of the original people, all right? Excellent. Now that I got the good stuff out of the way, um, thank you, as always, for tuning in to today's show. Now, this show is, um, you know, it's funded by different industry partners and people there in the industry. So if you're listening to this podcast, consider sponsoring uh, the show and sponsoring the network to continue our goal of being a premier black broadcast in the Internet station uh, that's for us, by us. Um, if you sponsorship opportunities and packages, I can definitely send them to you. You can DM me um, on uh, IG at Game Coaching, or you can uh, hit me at my email at Andre, A-U-N-D-R-E, at HeavenlyCallierInDFW.com. Uh, we would love to continue to bring this this free content, but it does always help to have some sponsors, get an opportunity to put your commercial on the show, uh, get you a spot to be interviewed on the show, and it's always great advertisement because, you know, once it's recorded and put out there, it's kind of like writing a book. We don't have to rewrite it. We can just keep resharing it, all right? So take some time, you know, to, to think about, consider, pray about if you need to, sponsoring, you know, uh, ITRN Radio and uh, more directly, you know, my show, The Recipe Menu Monday Podcast. So, all right. Now my mouth is extremely dry going through all my wonderful preliminaries. I think I'm going to start breaking those up. Uh, and doing throughout the show, but I wanted to talk today. Today's topic is 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 going to be um, uh, on the same lines of the, the the mental health for our our community and some of the things that could really help us, you know, take our take our mental capacity to to the next level. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to you know to a man that probably changed. Uh, the, the the face of hip hop or the face of thoughts of hip hop, you know, many years ago with a certain song that to this day we still sing, uh, Gangster Paradise. Uh, Coolio died at 59 years old, and um, he was definitely someone that was well respected in the hip hop community. Known, um, you know, you I can't call him a one hit wonder, but he, he did have his biggest hit, which would be you know Gangster's Paradise, which was for the movie that. Um, um, why can't I think of her name? Not Susan Sarandon. What was that lady's name? I don't know why I can't think of her name right now, but it'll come to me in a minute. But uh, she was the star of the movie and paid the tribute to him recently, uh, you know, for him passing away. His song was so impactful and changed the lives of uh, 
of a lot of people and a lot of perceptions of, of, of hip hop and uh, what we deal with in the inner cities because the, the, the movie was dealing with that in inner city. It was a white woman that was a teacher dealing with inner city youth. And at that time, you know, a lot of people didn't want to acknowledge, accept, or even notice the issues that were happening in these, in these inner cities. And she came in to, you know, offer some help. So I wanted to get some shout out and some love to, to Coolio, you know, um, and in his contribution, you know, to the hip hop world and um, so on and so forth. Uh, Kiana, how's it sound now? Do I sound, do I sound better? Can you hear me better? It's the same. All right. Hold on one second. Let me see. How about now? Does this sound a little bit better? I think I'm going to throw all my electronics out the window. All of them. None of them want to work. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll continue. We'll continue on with the show. And hopefully the sound will get better. Um, you know, I've moved to a quieter area. You know, the microphone is right to my mouth. I've got it turned all the way up. But you know how it is with, um, with, 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 with technology. Sometimes you can get it and sometimes you can't. Um, I want to talk about, you know, mental health in the community and backdooring on Coolio and, and exposing what was happening in the hood. Um, you know, I want to give a special shout out to, you know, members of my family. Uh, we recently had some, some tragedies that happened and, you know, some of it stemmed from some mental issues um, that was going on with the young man. Also, some emotional issues that were going on um, that caused this young man to uh, to take my nephew's life. I talked about it a bit in the other show and it made me really want to dive deep into the mental capacity of us, um, not only as as you know, people of color, but people in general. Um, there, there, there's a movie out now um, that documents, you know, the life of Jeffrey Dahmer. I haven't had the opportunity to see it, but just all the little snippets that I'm hearing from people and the families that are rising, not rising up, but in an uproar because it's bringing back some hurt past feelings. And if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, um, you know, he was a serial killer from the 70s to the 90s um, that was, um, you know, Killing, you know, men and, and especially black men um, during this time frame, and he was a bit of a cannibal and sodomite and all this other bad stuff, right? So, when dealing with the mental capacity, one of the biggest things that happened is a lot of people that love you and are around you really don't actually pay attention to when you're struggling with something. And most of us, I know myself included, a lot of times we we harden our hearts. And don't feel like we need to open up and express to others the feelings that we're having. We don't feel as if we need to, you know, tell anybody. We can just deal with it on our own, right? If we have issues with somebody else, we have a problem with our brother or our sister. A lot of times, you know, we'll just let it fester or um, as, as, as some people would say, get a lick back, you know. We'll do something heinous to them in the way that they've done it to us. Or some of us just ignore the fact that we have these feelings. And the problem is, is that those things go deep into your subconscious. And when it gets into your subconscious, it kind of directs your thinking. 
much no different than than, than food um, changes, you know, the, the way that your body moves and performs, um, whether you put in good food or you put in bad food. You know, it's the same thing when you put in good thoughts or put in bad thoughts. And so in in, in, in pushing forward with mental health, because you know my moniker on the show, Health and Wealth for the Future of My People, and who are my people? You just listening to the sound of my voice right now. In, in order to push forward with that mental health, you've got to get out of the, the old cliche of I can handle it. No, you can't. Let's be honest. Many of us deal with mental issues on a daily basis. Some are small, some are large, and some are catastrophes, right? And even from the smallest things to the largest things, a lot of times we want to express it, especially as men. Now, from what I've known, especially having four girls and, and five sisters, the women seem to not have as much of an issue expressing some things. Sometimes they want to express some things because they don't want to feel messy or they don't want to be looked at funny or have their, you know, uh, um, uh, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? They don't want their, their their feelings hurt or be embarrassed, right? But they're more open to share their knowledge or uh, share their issues with others than us as men. So I'm going to encourage all the men that is listening to this to take some time out and find someone that you that you can trust, someone that you feel comfortable enough to share. And if you have to go, you know, with a doctor, most doctors, I, I say, will adhere to their oath of not sharing that information with anybody. So if you feel like you can, you don't want anybody to know it all, reach out to some professional, um, find someone that you, that you can, can, can connect with and share some of your most intimate thoughts and feelings that you have. I, I think a lot of the, the mental issues that we deal with is because we hold it in and we think we can handle it. Um, and, and I'm going to use myself as an example. During that week, and I talked about this on the last show, you know, I had I had um, four deaths during the week. My my, my good cousin Bobby, my uh, my 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 nephew, my brother's brother's son, my nephew and his and his girl, and uh, my stepbrother's mother. And I didn't realize how it affected me because I always thought that I was just that I've become numb to death. Because it, it, it has happened relatively frequently um, in these last three to four years for me. And, you know, they say when you get older, more people start passing away. But when I look at where my age is in the, in the mid forties, I don't see mid forties as that time to, you know, to just friends just dying off to be dying off. Right. I consider that to be, you know, uh, um, one of those prime times, you know, almost to that midpoint in life where we get to celebrate some of our successes and, 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 um, uh, and triumphs that we've had, uh, together in, in different capacities than where we were in college or even in high school. But, uh, it's gotten to the point where I know for myself, I became numb to these things and I wouldn't share these mental issues that I was having, right? And, it took me about a week to realize that it's not so much that I was numb, that I, I immersed myself in other things that made me not think about it. I immersed myself in not so much just work, but in work, family, you know, writing recipes, cooking, traveling, 
you know, and I never really just sat back and realized, said, man, you know what? You've lost four family members, right? And and you won't be able to speak to them again. And the selfishness kicked in because I was like, man, I should have reached out more, should have talked more, should have built better relationships, things of that nature. And then I started realizing, I said, you know what? It was all according to God's plan. And what God wants me to do and understand that this is something that's part of the circle of life. You know, uh, physical death is is um, is mandatory for life. It's going to happen to each and every one of us. But a lot of people don't know how to handle it and deal with it. Um, you know, bringing up Dr. Keisha Ross, she talks about that post-traumatic, you know, syndrome. And I know the last interview me and her had was about the, the slavery portion. But it's also about people embracing the inevitable and understanding and stop fearing it so they can release themselves from the mental anguish that they're putting on themselves by burying it. Right. I have a class that I teach about um I teach on on that, you know, unlocking the self-conscious mind. It's called uh, VPM, Voice Power and Mindset. And in that Voice Power and Mindset, you know, we we establish your voice because a lot of times people don't know what to say, how to say, or or how to convey their message, you know, to people. But we all have that inner voice that knows what it wants to do and, and has the ability to tell us what to say in all situations. And then the power. We already have the power in us, but a lot of times it's been taken away over years of, of you know, being told, you know, negative things. You know, you never achieve anything because you're black. You're not going to make it till you're 18. You're not going to be able to do anything because you're overweight. You're too dark. You're too light. You're too white. You know, all those different things that happened in that time frame to do it. But we've always had the power within us to be successful and to be great. And then the last is mindset, you know, being able to change your mindset to understand that, you know, you can achieve, you know, 99% of everything that you want to do, right? You won't be able to complete all 100% because your journey isn't done until you pass away. So that 1% is when you leave your legacy and you pass away, right? And so because we all know nothing is perfect, see, 99, 99% helps you realize, you know what, I won't ever be perfect, but I can achieve perfection. And then when I pass away, I can feel triumphant in the fact that I left the legacy that was needed for my purpose in life, right? And so in that, we also teach, you know, four disciplines, um, you know, or four key points to achieving excellence in your life, discipline, consistency, knowledge, and skill. Okay. And in that discipline, one of the disciplines that you, that, that, that you must know is to be disciplined enough to know when you need help, right? You have to know when it's time to seek professional help, seek professional guidance, seek, you know, additional People besides just talking to your mom or your dad who have a lot of wisdom or even your grandparents, sometimes you need someone that does that doesn't know you that has an objective view of how you see things and be able to convey that message to help you heal from whatever pain, hurt, or trauma that you've experienced. Um, you know, I, I was watching a, a movie the other evening, um, and I don't get to do that too too often, but. You know, I had to take some, some mental break time. And um, the movie was called Memory with Liam Neeson in it. And it dealt with a lot of different things in the movie. Um, and 
It may not be as dynamic as most people think, but I always watch movies objectively to see what kind of positivity and, 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 you know, ammunition, if you will, that I can use. So the short version of it, not to give full memory, the full movie away, but memory, you know, it starts off with the man who is, uh, who is a hitman and, um, he has, uh, Alzheimer's runs in his family. And so he gets to the point where, you know, he has to write things down on his arm that consider this is a hitman with a memory issue. That should already get you to, uh, you know, excited to go watch it, see how he overcomes the fact that you got to remember who you're killing and not killing the wrong person. But anyway, once again, movie. But he had Alzheimer's. His brother had, um, um, a, you know, type four or five. I don't know how they classify Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's, you know, where he could remember almost nothing. And so he had to, you know, go and they wanted him to basically, you know, uh, shut people up, right? And he got to a point where he got to this young lady that he was supposed to uh, eliminate, right? When she was 13, 14 years old. And she was a part of um, sex trafficking, right? And he has this thing, I don't kill kids, right? So he gets there and realizes she's a kid, but she's a key witness in taking down like this big mega corporation woman who was actually covering up, uh, covering up the sex trafficking that was going on. Even though she wasn't the one sex trafficking herself, you know, her, her son was. And so she was extremely powerful, you know, billions of dollars. So she's covering it up, right? And the, the little girl, when her father, who was exploiting her, um, gets killed by the the uh, FBI, you know, she hold, she held a lot of disdain and anger and 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 upsetness at them for killing her father, even though her father was exploiting her sexually. Right. He was using it for game. He had manipulated his own daughter's mind to say, you have sex with these men. That's the way that you get to freedom because they were down in Mexico. And the movie in just those two pieces, because the, there's a there's a police officer that's struggling with the police department. They don't understand, you know, the best way to help, help this little girl. Her in dealing with that, you know, she was in such mental disarray thinking that her father was telling her the right thing even though he was exploiting her terribly right she thought the only way to freedom was to sex so she rejected pretty much all the help that the police officer gave her and as the movie went on he said you know what you don't belong to be here in this immigrant cage and shit back to mexico you're part of sex trafficking we're gonna put her in a group home and um and, and and in that group home you know, she got the care that she needs to realize the police officer was really trying to help her. He really didn't mean to kill her father, you know, but her father, of course, resisted arrest. He tried to shoot him. He tried to stab him, you know, and they fell through a window and the man dies, right? But she held that resentment. But she didn't reach out to the people in the in the house that she was in to get the care that she needed to accept the fact that the police officer was helping her. And she's 13, Right. You know, she just lost her father who was exploiting her, who told her that she was doing the right thing for freedom. And and I use her as an example of us. I'm going to talk to my men first and then I'm going to talk to my ladies. When we were youth, 
we were taught a certain way by our parents, our guardian, foster parent, grandparent, whoever was our caregiver as a kid. Even if you were, you know, 10 years old and you had to be out on your own. We had certain precepts and concepts that was taught to us that because we didn't know otherwise, we spoke it to be true, right? We believed it to be true, right? And for me, some of those things were, you know, men don't cry, right? Men don't, 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 uh, share their mental issues. We just deal with it and go. A real man to just, you know, suck it up and keep moving. Right. And I realized in that many men were taught that way across all color backgrounds, not just black men, just all across all color backgrounds. And it shaped us into the men that we are now. Many of the men that say are physically abusive were either abused or saw abuse. Most of the women that were um, that are physically abused or sexually abused, it was done to them as children and in, in a young mind, it fashioned to them as if it was right because the people that they knew, like, and trust told them, this is what this is. This is right and this is good. Right? And as a kid, you're a sponge. So you're soaking in what is being told to you. You're soaking in what you're being taught, right? And so if you don't know anything better, you don't have enough influences in your life to tell you something different that shapes your mindset. Fast forward to adulthood. You still have those preconceived notions from your youth in your subconscious. And now that you're, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, a lot of times you act on things and don't even realize how you were programmed as a child which affects your mental health. I always use myself as an example because I know me better than anybody else, right? Best example to give. I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, that was pretty tough. Drugs, murder, crooked cops, everything you can think of it. Um, I'll just give you an example of where I grew up. Breonna Taylor was a case that just happened about the corruption in the Louisville Metro Police Department. So if it's going on now, just imagine what it was like before we had social media in the 80s and the 90s. And because of that, I was taught to always look over my shoulder, always be aware of my surroundings. You know, when I go into buildings, I sit kind of with my back to the wall so I can see the entire scope of wherever I'm at, whether it's a building, whether it's a restaurant, any of those things. I, and I do that subconsciously. And and I first realized it, um, <laughs> I first realized it when this, this, this past weekend, I was in Glassboro, New Jersey for a mindful eating event that I put on. And, uh, my chef partner and mentor, Alex, you know, he went and sat in the corner that I would normally sat in, sat in. And I sat at the other end of the table. My back was to most of the restaurant. And I kept looking over my left and right shoulder like someone's going to bother me. Like, I haven't lived in my neighborhood in 30 years. Easy. 35 years, probably. And and I kept looking over my shoulder. And when I realized that, that was in my subconscious, because Alex pointed it out, he's like, ah, you sit with your back to the wall, too, so you can see everything, huh? We grew up in two different hoods. He grew up in New York. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And we both laughed at it. And I thought about it for a minute this past weekend. It was like, 
that's mental suffering I'm giving myself because now I'm I'm sending my anxiety up because I'm thinking this this restaurant full of a hundred people and wait staff that somebody's gonna come up behind me and try to rob me or stab me or you know do do me harm and do my people harm. And it didn't click then until he said it. I was like, wow, this has been in my subconscious for 30 years. And I've never addressed it. I never thought to address it because it's second nature at this point. And many of you listening to this now have these same things that have happened to you that you were taught as a, as a kid. The same things that happened to you in your youth is in your subconscious and you're subconsciously doing these things unconsciously, consciously. That's what I call it. And it clicked to me this weekend when it came to mental health and really dealing with it. We don't share these kind of stories and intimacies with one another, and we definitely don't take it to another level and seek psychiatric help. And that's why a lot of us are depressed often, don't have strong, stable relationships. You know, many introverts become even more introverted because of what happened to them in the past, and he never addressed it. And so I told myself, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to be one of the first to address, you know, address myself by, uh, I'm going to start going into, (laughs) I'm going to start going into, you know, uh, restaurants at different places and, and, and sit you know, not with my back to the wall or sit in the far back seat so I can see everything. I'm going to sit in different spaces and try to observe something new because all I know is protect thyself. All I know is to look out for thyself and look out for the loved ones around me. And I never thought it was a mental issue until somebody else noticed it and was like, hey, you do the same thing that I do. See, that brings up an unnecessary fear, Right. And I'm not saying to not be aware of your surroundings, especially my women. I teach my daughters all the time. If you can go in twos, go in twos. But be aware when you see, you know, um, 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 shady areas. Be aware when you see someone driving with their lights off. Be aware when you're at the, you know, grocery store in the evening time. You know, watch out for the people that are around you because, you know, those are the ones that get you. Those are the ones that uh, hop in your car and, those are the ones that carjack you. Those are the ones that kidnap you, you know, especially dealing with, um, you know, human trafficking, because um, it was something like that happened to an artist by the name of Akon. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Akon, but, you know, he's had some, some great hits and he actually is building a community over in Africa that's uh, completely run by, you know, people of color. But uh, he had a 911 call and... <laughs> And, and 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 told the lady in nine one one that he was carjacked, and, and the lady and the police officer asked him, you know, was there a knife involved, a gun involved, something like that? And he was like, no, stunning, you weren't carjacked. They just stole your car, right? And I'm like, if you could hear the recording, it, it was just there was no empathy or compassion or even sympathy for him being. His car being stolen. He was at the gas station. He was pumping gas. And, uh, you know, he turned around. They hopped into his car and uh, they took off with his car, um, got, got, grabbed his keys and took off with his car and drove off. And the, the lack of empathy for that police officer 
was probably because she had heard so many different things as a 911 operator over so many years that in her subconscious was like, oh, he didn't get carjacked. You know, he, he they just stole his car, you know, because they didn't take it from him aggressively. They just hop in and drove off, you know, and it, in the hood, that's a carjacking. You know, if I tell you to get out of the car, you get out of the car and I hop in, it's a carjacking, whether I got a gun or not. But the lack of empathy that was there lets me know that, you know, there's some mental issues that she needs to deal with in being a 911 operator um, because, you know, when you hear the call, he, he was bothered, but he wasn't bothered because, of course, he wasn't taking his gunpoint or knife point or, or for, forcefully roughed up. It was just like, give me your keys, hop in the car and roll away. And we don't deal with those mental issues when they happen, we bury them in our subconscious. And our subconscious really is our conscious mind manifested. And we don't even realize it. Some of the ways we think, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we love animals and the way we love plants or the way we love each other, all comes out of our subconscious into our conscious front. So a good example of this is the, 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 the hatred in, in in these color lines, right? When you have, you know, organizations like the Ku Klux Klan that just hate us for the color of our skin or the pro-militant black people that hate white people for the color of their skin. See, it was engrafted to us in our subconscious over a period of time based on not only on what we see, but also what we've endured and and and, and experienced in our life. Because most kids, you know, when you're dealing with those issues as a youth, right, they don't see color. They see someone like them and see it's something that, that, that is taught. And mentally in our subconscious, we take those things throughout our years. And oftentimes we become old and stuck in our ways, as, as, as the phrase would go, um, and be unwilling to want to change our mindset to see a different perspective. Right. And we're talking about mental health here, a different perspective in our mental capacity. Like I said earlier, for me, my back to the wall, because I'm in fear that someone's going to get me or got me. And it's been 30 years since I've even lived in a neighborhood anywhere close to the way that I grew up, you know, and, and it reminded me when I went to Jersey City for another mindful eating event two weeks ago, um, we were in the heart of a poor city part of Jersey, the poorest part of the city. And I literally saw heroin addicts shooting up. I hadn't seen that in 30 years since I was a youth. Literally saw people that was trying to sit down in a chair that was not there, right? But you could see them grabbing, wanting to sit down. I mean, crack bowels on the side of the thing. It, it, you know, you these are things that you hear people talk about or you see in documentaries and because they're filming it, it's like, oh, okay, it happens. But I was in the middle of it. I walked around the neighborhood because that's what I do. You know, I'm a hood guy. I walked around the neighborhood and seen these people in disarray. And knowing who needed mental health, right, and them not taking that time. Hey, Colette, welcome. I'm just now seeing your hand. I hope it hadn't been up too long. What, what would you like to comment on? That's okay. How are you? I just wanted to say that that the issues that we deal with are not surface issues. 
it's all about the pathology that has not been completely addressed. And the pathology is so deep and so long that this is going to take decades to repair, to resolve, to even begin to think about how we can heal. And I know that people talk about healing quite a bit, but it can't be just a one-off. It's not at all just a one-off. It's about healing, not only from within, but also from without. And you mentioned kids or people who are hated simply because of the color of their skin. And I heard you say white people are hated because of the color of their skin. They don't have color in their skin. That's the first thing. The second thing is I don't believe, and correct me if I am wrong, I don't believe that any one ethnicity or culture is hated because of the color of their skin. I believe wholeheartedly that children are taught hatred. Children are taught hatred, not simply because of the color of their skin, but because someone feels that they are superior. Thus, you have the white supremacy because they are superior and supreme over anyone else. And because people are indoctrinated and began with this indoctrination decades ago, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, the indoctrination still lives on today. And it's unfortunate that we don't address it for what it really is. There is a docu-series out about Emmett Till and what his mother went through and how she did not want to allow her son's murder to go in vain and unheard. And there are quite a few either documentaries or words spoken about things that have taken place against Black people specifically that have not been addressed. And we're at a point here in 23, practically, that if we don't do something for ourselves, it's over. We are continuing to allow someone else to create, develop, curate, and disseminate our narrative. And we still don't do anything about it. So we have another program on the network that discusses at length mental health issues and mental health issues, particularly in the Black community. It's still a stigma. We talked about domestic violence on the Sunday show. And there is a stigma attached to that. 
we cannot afford to have all of these areas and stigmas and elements that we don't talk about and we allow it to fester. We can't afford that. We cannot afford it. If we are to, if we are to change our narrative that impacts our trajectory, we have to change everything about us. And we have to stop thinking that somebody's going to do it for us. I have a thing about these diversity programs at Fortune 5, 1,100, 500 companies. They all of a sudden, since 21, I believe 2021, 22, they're now popping up with these diversity departments. So-and-so has been promoted to director of diversity. Instead of asking for congratulations, you should be pissed off. You've been sitting in that position in another position for 20 years. And now all of a sudden they promote you to diversity and you want everyone to congratulate you on something that shouldn't have been or should have been done 20 years ago. Wait a minute. Diversity didn't just happen. Those departments did not just happen. Those departments came about in the 70s. Those were the people that I dealt with in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. And here it is, 22, and we got to congratulate people on LinkedIn for their promotion to chief of diversity. Wake up, y'all. Stop. Well, can we look at it from a, from a different perspective? Sure. Right? We already know who's been controlling, you know, businesses. And we know who's been destroying black businesses. So we would have that same foothold or that same equal equity, whatever you want to call it. And with these people getting promoted to these diversity and inclusion positions, could it be that someone, and I'm, I'm going to say this with uh, my own personal 33% confidence, right? One third confidence that they actually created these programs because these companies want to change because they've seen the damage that they've caused. Um, I, I have a group um, that, that I do with, um, with a young lady that has those courageous conversations with the opposite race, right? We call it the merge summit. And in the merge summit, we have um, a, a panel full of executive white people and a panel full of executive black people. Um, Keisha, Dr. Keisha Ellis um, was one of the panelists in my most recent Merge Summit that I had on there where we had those tough conversations. And some of those people um, that were in there, the, you know, the counterparts, that's what I call the white people. Some of those people that were in there really wanted to make that change. But the biggest thing was the fear in their mental and subconscious of what they were taught as kids growing up, right? They were taught about, you know, uh, black people not being the best people. And most of them grew up in predominantly white universities. Like the young lady I, that I co-do it with, uh, Emily, Emily grew up in rural Indiana where she didn't meet a black person until 
you know, she was like in her teens, like nobody in the community was black, not a person, no teachers, no workers, the, the janitor at her high school, nobody, even the lower positions, there was nobody black in her community at all. And she wasn't necessarily taught, you know, racism um, based on the story that she told me, but she wasn't taught about black people at all. So when, it, when she first saw it, of course, it was new to her and like, oh, my God, there's people that don't look like me in this world. Right. And very sheltered. And she saw the disparity and the the what was the what was the word she used? Um, I can't think of the word she used, but they, she saw the gap that was there between black and white people. And the biggest thing is having those conversations to understand the other culture that most black people don't hate white people. We hate what you've done to us. It's kind of like when you look at Christianity and it's like, you don't hate the person, you hate the sin. See, it's the sin in you or the, 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 the failure to meet expectations, um, you know, that has caused this, this rift between black and white people all over the ages. You know, it goes back to me starting to talk about Queen Elizabeth and the many black families that, you know, her monarchy, you know, uh, uh, murdered to take over that are just now getting their liberties, you know, from that British English rule, right? And for us as black people, Colette, you said it, you know, we've got to stop looking for somebody else to do it. We've got to be the one to step up, stand up and do it ourselves, Right. We have to be the ones that understand in our subconscious, there lies all kind of negativity. There lies all kind of, 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 of disparity, all kind of, of hurt, pain, generationally passed on, uh, um, nuances of, of tomfoolery and, and segregation and separation from this. And we have to take that time to, begin to open our mouths. That's why I love doing the Merge Summit because I get an opportunity because I'm 100% authentic at all times with myself. You know, I, people people know where I stand. And one of the biggest issues is that in, in, in our mind as black people, you know, we see white people and they're just terrible. And it could be that for many white people when they see black people, that it's just terrible. Nobody's willing to have those conversations to open up to have effective change. So maybe some of these, I'm not going to say all, and I'm going to say this with 33% confidence, that these diversity inclusion programs is not so much that it's a promotion. It's them putting somebody in a position to help with something they know nothing about. Many of these companies, they don't know enough about black people because they didn't grow up black, right? They didn't grow up with the hatred. They didn't grow up with the negativity. They didn't grow up with, 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 with slavery in their DNA. They didn't grow up with that. All they grew up was the entitlement mentality because they're white. You know, they get certain privileges, especially here in the United States. So um, I, I always look at it from a different perspective when it comes to it. It's like, yeah, it's been a long time coming, but we should have been doing it or been pushing for it. And now that you're in that position, what I would hope is the people that are in the diversity and inclusion, because I have a few friends that have been promoted to these departments, and uh, they will tell you what I asked them on LinkedIn. I said, are you really just going to be a placeholder or are you actually going to change the place? 
Colette, well, you want to say something? Yes. And because I have seen all of the coins, and there are more coins out there that I have not seen, I don't believe here in 22 or 21 or 20 that there are still people on the planet that don't know anything about black people. I refuse to believe that. I I don't believe that not for one second. Now, let me quantify and qualify that. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, Andre. Andre, we do have televisions currently, correct? Yes. Smart TVs, yes. correct? Okay. You yes. have smartphones, right? Yes. Radios, okay. We also have something called the internet that has the World Wide Web, correct? correct. Okay, so for folks to not know, I find it not only insulting, not only irregular, it's impossible for me, just me, to believe that someone in the past 10, 20 years doesn't know anything about. Because if they were really interested, if it if they were at a company and they needed to know this, there are ways to find out. We can find out about aliens and we don't we're not gonna live with them anytime soon. Okay, we can find out about people on other planets. So for me, from whence I came, from where I sit, the way I think, for somebody to say at any of these companies that I've never, and let me let me also say this, that I've never worked with or dealt with Black folks. I worked for an organization by the name of Birmingham, uh, Buckingham University. I worked at Buckingham University in 2010, and the university was located in the heart of L.A. in South Central, and it was a wonderful program, wonderful program. We were accredited through Hope International University, which is in Orange County, and it's across from Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton. We went out to Hope International for an all-day planning meeting. We became acquainted with uh, the instructors that were going to lead our program. We became acquainted with some of the other faculty and staff members. Um, I don't believe we saw the chancellor that day, but some of the big wigs, some of the people that approved our program. And it's too bad that Buck Buckingham University had to shut down because of the lack of of funding and and participation it was it's really too bad because it was the only black college west of the mississippi well i had to talk about buckingham and i stood before the big wigs and the faculty members and i had to discuss with them who we were what we were doing and why we were doing it and to talk about the collaboration between buckingham university and hope International University. They asked me to take some courses so that I could become a, an instructor there at Hope International, which I unfortunately did not do, fortunately and, and unfortunately. Well, during the meeting, some of the instructors who taught at Hope International University told me 
that they've never been west of the 57 or the 55 freeway. They didn't know anything about LA, didn't know anything about black people, didn't know anything about the area that we've been in, never left Orange County. And it was a struggle for them to think that they were gonna have to deal with black people. This was in 2010. And I feel the same way today as I felt then. You are really kidding me. Now, granted, Hope International was practically all white. Out of, I don't remember the exact population, but I want to say there were something like 175 to 100 Black students on that campus. And there had to be at least 3,000 students on that campus. Not like their counterparts across the street, Fullerton, that probably had 25,000. And San Jose University had 32,000 students, Black students, I'm sorry, 32,000 students and only 3,000 Black students. So Hope didn't know what they were going to do with us because they didn't know that we were Black and didn't know how to deal with Black and didn't know what to do with Black. That was Orange County. And I thought, then you're kidding me. You don't have television? You that was a have... yeah, I, That's my point. That's my point. It was just. That's why I'm like, I don't, you know, when you say you can't see that someone doesn't have a television on this thing, what you see on TV is not what the black flight is, you know? That's my point. That's precisely my point. But you cannot tell me that they don't know black folks exist and that they don't know that black folks only play basketball or football. You see black folks on television. You know, they, they are news anchors. They are doing a number of things. You know about the Lakers. You know about the Angels. You know about the Dodgers. You know about the Rams. Okay. You know about these things. So you know that there are Black people on this planet. So the the we can say all day long that there are people in diversity positions who don't know anything about working with black people really it was the diversity positions that got me into i don't know half or more than half of the companies that i dealt with for label express metro reproductions your type printing i dealt with all of those affirmative action people and they don't do it out of the kindness of their heart mr bob kowalski with Union Bank, United California Bank, who was one of my biggest clients, who gave me work every single day, including when I was in the hospital giving birth to my daughter. He was waiting for me to come pick up work. Mr. Bob Kowalski told me point blank, I don't like having to deal with Blacks and be told. I don't like that. I know what I'm going to do, and I don't want them to tell me but that I have to do it. And he did not. And he and I were, for a white boy, Bob Kowalski, gave me work every single day. Best of friends. Called me when I was in the hospital giving birth to Andriana. Said, Yolanda, come on in here and get this work. But Bob Kowalski told me he didn't want the government to tell him that he had to deal with Black people. He had his Black printer. 
It was Yolanda Williams from Metro Reproductions. And that was that. And he wasn't going to do it anywhere else. I was, uh, Neutrogena was one of my big, big clients. Neutrogena, the man sat there like a stone. And I said, after I gave him my 30-minute spiel, I said, is there anything else that I can answer for you? He said, no, you've said quite enough. He stood up, I stood up, gathered my portfolio. I walked out. And when I got into my car, I said, okay, all righty then. He's going to be one of my biggest clients. And he was. When the Southern California Edison Company told me, okay, you won, Yolanda. Now we have to deal with blacks. We just don't have to deal with you. What did he say that for? Wow. He fell and got it. Excuse me? Did he say that just as sure as I'm sitting here and you're sitting there? He sure did. We came out of that meeting and I'm the only black woman and black person in there. You won, Yolanda. And that was a Mexican man that told me that. And it was a Mexican man that told me he couldn't deal with me because we were inferior. We were mediocre. He was a Mexican man that told me we were mediocre. And when he said that, I stood straight up. I will have your job. And I took it all the way to the top. All the way. And when he said to me, you won. Now we have to deal with blacks. We just don't have to deal with you. What did he say that for? Because I grabbed my portfolio and went to the boss once again. And that was in uh, 19, I'd say about 91, maybe. 1991. And in, in, in the two, and yeah, just before 1993. When I became the only black woman to manufacture labels, it was the same thing. It was the same thing. My husband and I went to a convention in Anaheim, California, where people think there is no racism. And in just over 100,000 square feet, he and I were the only two black people there. Actually, there was another one guy who was a label manufacturer but he was not at our level he had a press in his garage there were three out of a hundred thousand people so it's, it's for me white people have a long long way to go before they correct any of this any of it and right now there is an issue with with uh byron allen who has said that mcdonald's says that that dealing with black people their services are inferior he can only do advertisement with white folks because they have the means to do it and byron allen has a gigantic billion dollar lawsuit in progress right now right now as we speak and white folks will deal with us as long as we're making them happy they'll smile that's why i can't stand sports because as long as those boys go out there and run that ball, boy, as long as they go out there and do that, white folks are happy. They're happy. Hmm. But as you stop running that ball, boy, something's wrong. Wow. Man, you brought some incredible stories. There's things to think about. Because 
as I started off at the beginning of the show, mental. It's a mindset. It, it is a mindset. And us in the, in, in, in the community, we have to get to it. So thank you so much, Yolanda, for chiming in, as you always do. We're at the end of the show. And, and, and for my people listening to this and listening to these incredible stories um, that you hear on here often, I want you to truly understand that it starts in your mental. It's packed in your subconscious. Absolutely. It's time to unpack your subconscious and get rid of these these notions of negativity and, and bigotry and um, racism and things of those natures because we weren't born to hate each other. So we got to get to the point where we can communicate with one another to find a viable solution that is equity for us all. So that's been today's show. This has been the Chef de Cuisine DRE, Chef Dre Blast. Coming at you with the recipe menu Monday. Don't forget, November 5th, we'll have an incredible telethon on itrnradio.com. Be able to tune in on the Zoom, tune in via YouTube and all your social media outlets. Contribute some of the money. Make a donation to help the people in Sudan. And continue to support this this station. You know, you have the opportunity to uh to 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 become a sponsor, get an interview spot. You know, and help take this black-owned business to yeah. continue its excellence in communication. All right? So I love you big. I'll talk to you next week. And right. uh, I holla. All right. Thank you, Andre. And you are listening to the Intentional Talk Radio Network. Thank you for joining us. It is a Monday. Yesterday began the work week. Today begins the work week. Yesterday began the week. Today begins the work week. Thank you for joining us. We always have a twist to something. This is where we are changing the narrative. We bring you news and views that you can use. This is where we talk to you, for you, with you, and about you. And it is typically all good. So come on back at 5 o'clock. We've got Mindful Mondays. And we also have In Your Own Words with Dr. Godwin Orkin. We'll see you then, 5 p.m. right here on the Pacific Coast at Intentional Talk Radio. Thank you. Take care and be careful.